Letter twenty one of A Lady's Life on a Farm in Manitoba by Mrs. Cecil B. Hall. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. In the train, two hundred miles west of Winnipeg, July twenty fourth, eighteen eighty two. As we seem to stop every two or three miles for some trifling cause or another, I am in hopes I may get through a long, maybe disjointed letter to post to you on our way through Winnipeg to-night, which we wish to reach about six o'clock, giving us time to drive out to the farm before it is quite dark. I told you we were proposing a trip up northwest, and we really have had a most successful journey. A has a friend, manager of the Bertle Land Company, who with others has bought up land, intends breaking so many acres on each section and then reselling it, hoping thereby to clear all expenses and make a lot of money besides, and as he had to go up and look after the property, it was settled that we should all go together, and very glad we are that we did do it, though we have had some very funny experiences. We are pleased to find that all the northwest is not like the country around Winnipeg, so awfully flat and without a tree. On the contrary, we have been through rolling prairie, almost hilly, and very well wooded in places. We started last Monday, the 18th, having got up at 4.15, which we did not think so terribly early as we might have done before the days we were accustomed to breakfast at half-past six, but had even then a terrible run for the train. We had had some heavy thunderstorms on the Sunday, and though we allowed two hours and three-quarters to do our sixteen miles into Winnipeg Station, the roads were so heavy, and the mud so sticky and deep, that we really thought we should be taken up for cruelty to animals, hustling our poor little mare. As it was, we arrived just in time to get into the cars, our packages and bundles being thrown in after us as the train was on the move. Luckily we managed to get all on board, and found plenty of friends travelling west. One a government inspector, a most agreeable man, who has to certify and pass the work done on the line before government pays its share of the expenses. He was telling us how he and two other men spent three hours finding names for all the new stations along the line, and could only think of three. The stations are placed at the distance of eight to ten miles apart, and they are bound not to have any name already taken up in Canada, so that for a railway extending over three thousand miles to the Rocky Mountains, names are a difficulty. We did him the favor of writing out a few, taking all the villages one was interested in in the old country, for which attention he seemed most obliged, and has promised a time-table of the line with the nomenclature of its stations when opened. They are building the Canadian Pacific at the rate of twenty-five miles a week, and every available man is pressed into service, so that it is not so surprising the poor farmers cannot find labor. The wages, two dollars to two and a half a day, are more than we can pay. There has not been much engineering required or shown on this line, as we went up and down with the waves of the prairies, and had only two small cuttings between Winnipeg and Brandon, three hundred miles, and were raised a few feet above the marshes. But considering how fast they work, and how short a time they have been, it is creditably smooth. We disembarked at a city called Brandon, which last year was unheard of, two or three shanties and a few tents being all there was to mark the place. Now it has over three thousand inhabitants, large sawmills, shops, and pretentious two-storied hotels. We found our carriage, which had been sent on two days previously, waiting for us at the station, as we were to have driven on that night to Rapid City, but owing to the manager not being able to get through all his business, 
and his not liking to leave the two laborers he had with him on the loose, for fear they should be tempted by higher wages to go off with someone else, we decided to remain that night at Brandon, and were not sorry to retire to bed directly after dinner, about eight-thirty. We were given not a very spacious apartment, the two double beds filling up the whole of it. In all the hotels we have been into, they put such enormous beds in the smallest of space, I conclude speculating on four people doubling up at a pinch. We luckily had brought some sheets. The ones supplied looked as if they had been used many a time since they had been last through the wash-tub. I cannot say we slept well, chiefly, I think, owing to lively imaginations, and the continual noise of a town after the extreme quiet of the farm. And, as there was only a canvas partition between us and the two men, who snored a lively duet, we had many things to lay the blame to. We were on the move again at about five-thirty, intending to breakfast at half-past six, and start on our travels directly after. But somehow, what with one thing and the other, the various packing away of our different packages and parcels into our three wagons, it was past eight o'clock before we got off. We were rather amused at the expression at breakfast of our waiting-maid, when asked to bring some more bread and then tea. She wanted much to learn if we had any more side-orders. Alcoholic spirits are quite forbidden in this territory. To bring a small keg of whiskey and some claret with us, we had to get a permit from the governor. I am afraid the inhabitants will have spirits. The first man we met last night was certainly much the worse for liquor, and though in our hotel there was no visible bar, an ominous door in the back premises was always on the swing, and a very strong odor of spirits emanated therefrom. Our cavalcade, A, and the manager in the Democrat, we two in a buggy, and the two laborers with a man to drive in another carriage, produced quite an imposing effect. We had to cross the Assiniboine on a ferry, and then rose nearly all the way to Rapid City, twenty-two miles, going through pretty country, much wooded, with hundreds of small lakes, favorite resorts of wild duck. The flowers were in great profusion, but we saw no animals anywhere, excepting a few chipmunks and gophers, which are sort of half-rats, half-squirrels. The chipmunks are dear little things about the size of a mouse, with long bushy tails and a dark stripe running the whole length of the body. Rapid City is a flourishing little town of some fifty houses, and is growing quickly. It is prettily situated on the banks of the little Saskatchewan, and has a picturesque wooden bridge thrown over the river. We had lunch, picnic-style, and a rest of two hours. There was a large Indian camp just outside the town, and as we sat sketching several Indians passed us. Their style of dress is grotesque, to say the least of it. One man passed us in a tall beaver hat, swallow-tail coat, variegated colored trousers, moccasins, and a scarlet blanket hanging from his shoulder. The long hair, which both men and women wear, looks as if a comb never had passed near it, and gives them a very dirty appearance. They all seemed affable, and gave us broad grins in return for our salutes. The Indian tribes on Canadian territory are the Blackfeet and the Pigans. The former used to number over ten thousand, but now are comparatively few. The smallpox, which raged among them in 1870, decimated their numbers. Also alcohol, first introduced by Americans who established themselves on Belly River about 1866, and in which they drove a roaring trade as the Indians sacrificed everything for this fire-water, as they called it, and hundreds died in consequence of exposure and famine, having neither clothes to cover them, nor horses, nor weapons wherewith to hunt. 
Luckily, in 1874, the mounted police put an entire end to this abominable sale of whiskey. The Indian is naturally idle. To eat, smoke, and sleep is the sole end of his life, though he will travel immense distances to fish or hunt, which is the only occupation of the men, the women doing all the rest, their condition being but little better than beasts of burden. The Indian of the plains subsists in winter on buffalo, dried and smoked, but in spring, when they resort to the neighborhood of the small lakes and streams, where innumerable wild fowl abound, they have grand feasting on the birds and eggs. The tribes living near the large lakes of Manitoba, Winnipeg, and Winnipegosis have only fish as food, which they dry and pack for winter use, and eat it raw and without salt, which sounds very palatable. When the Dominion government obtained possession of the Northwest Territories, by the extinction of the Hudson Bay Company's title in 1869, it allotted to the tribes inhabiting the country, on their resigning all their claims to the land, several reserves, or parcels of ground, which were of sufficient area to allow of one square mile to every family of five persons. On these lands the Indians are being taught to cultivate corn and roots. Implements, seeds for sowing, and bullocks are given them, besides cows and rations of meat and flour, until they are self-sustaining. They are also allowed five dollars a head per annum, so that several wives, polygamy being allowed, and children are looked upon as an insured income by a man. This treatment by government has been very successful, and many tribes are abandoning their precarious life of hunting. Horse-stealing, in former days, was looked upon by the young men as an essential part of their education, but now the settler need be in no dread of them, as they are peaceably inclined and kept in check by the mounted police, a corps of whose services, and pluck all who have had any dealings with them, cannot speak too highly. The officers are men of tact and experience, and the corps numbers about five hundred strong. They move their headquarters from fort to fort, according to the movements of the Indians and the advance of immigration. On leaving Rapid City we took a shorter track than what is generally taken, thereby saving ourselves at least forty miles to Birtle. Our first night, distance about twenty miles after luncheon, we spent alongside of a small storehouse on the Oak River. We had passed some very comfortable-looking settlements that afternoon, one where we got information about our road, belonging to a man called Shank, who had been settled about four years, and had quite a homely-looking shanty covered with creepers, and a garden fenced in. At Oak River we had a rather speculated on getting both food and lodging, but when we found the fare offered no better than ours, we decided to have our own supper, getting the woman to boil us some water for our tea. We also refused the lodging. The house was scrupulously clean, ditto the woman, but we couldn't quite make up our minds to share the only bedroom with her, her husband and two other men, one ill with inflammation of the lungs, rejoicing in an awful cough, and rather given to expectoration. So we had our first experience of real camping out. Our tent was an A-tent, just big enough to allow of two people sleeping side by side. The only place to stand up in was exactly the middle, but we arranged it very fairly comfortably by putting some straw under our buffalo robes and our clothes as pillows. The men had to make their couch under the carriage with whatever cloaks we didn't want, to keep the dew off them, and by lighting a large smudge to keep off the mosquitoes, we all slept pretty well, though Mother Earth is very unrelenting. If, however, we wanted to change our position, we were sure to awake. The following morning, Tuesday, the men had a bathe in the river, 
which we very much envy them, though having brought our india-rubber bath, and there being plenty of water handy, we did very well. We were off again at seven o'clock. Our breakfast bill of fare not much varied from that last night. Tea, corned beef, ox-tongue, and bread and butter. The country through which we passed was not so pretty as on Monday, with fewer trees. Our cavalcade was increased by another man in his buggy, who was on his way to Edmonton, and he travelled with us most of the day. Midday, after eighteen miles, we came on a small settlement of four Canadians, who were just finishing their dinner. They were very nice, delighted to see ladies, placed the whole of their place at our disposal, and though of course they could do but little for us, we were not allowed to wash up our plates nor to draw our own water. They had everything so tidy and nice, rough it was found to be. Like thousands of Canadians, they have taken up land, two hundred and forty acres apiece, and are working them together, with two yoke of oxen and a pair of Indian ponies. Whilst we were resting, the manager drove on to find his farm, but as they have bought several sections in different townships from the railway company, it was difficult to find out on which section his men were working. The only thing he knew was two of the numbers of the section, the only thing he knew was two of the numbers of the section, and that the Arrow River ran through the property. The Canadians told us that Ford Mackenzie, for which we had been steering all the morning, was six miles further on, so that when we left them about two o'clock, amidst many expressions of regret, they repeated to us several times how delighted they were seeing ladies, not having seen a petticoat since they came up last spring. We had to wonder many a mile before finding either the ford or the farm. As it was, we mistook the ford and had to cross and recross the river three times, which we in our buggy didn't at all appreciate. The banks were so steep we felt we might easily be pitched out. At Mackenzie's ford we found a wretched man, who, having settled here two years ago and was getting on well, had last month brought his wife and children up by steamer on the Assiniboine, where they had caught diphtheria. Two children had succumbed to the disease, and his wife, he greatly feared, couldn't live. We luckily had some whiskey with us, and were glad to be able to give him some, as the doctor had recommended stimulants to keep up the poor woman's strength. From him we heard where the manager's camp really was, and reached it, very tired, about seven o'clock, to find everything in the most fearful state of disorder and mismanagement, not even a well dug to provide water for man or beast. The men had mutinied, ten of them gone off, and only three and a woman as cook left. She had known much better days, and was perfectly helpless and unable to manage the stove or the cooking in a shed made of a few poles with a tarpaulin thrown over. A is the most splendid man. Whatever difficulties there are, he makes light of them, and directly the horses had been unharnessed, he set to work to put our tent up, and lay out our supper, which was improved by the addition of some fried potatoes. Our table was the spring-seat of the wagon, our seats the boxes the stores have come in, or our bundle of rags, and though the ground was harder to sleep on, as we had no straw under our buffalo robe, still we got a fair amount of rest at night." Two very pretty Italian greyhounds we had brought up with us kept our feet warm, as it was quite chilly, the dews being very heavy. The men were horribly disturbed all night by the mosquitoes, which were in myriads. No smoke of the smudges really keeps them off, though it stupefies and bothers them a good deal. On Wednesday, contrary to expectation, we got some water to wash with, the manager having had a hole dug. Water is so easily procured with digging, and at no great depth, that there is no excuse for not having it in abundance. 
We then spent our morning, whilst the men were going over the various sections, in trying to teach the woman to cook, making biscuits, which were not a success, mending clothes, and writing up our diaries, so that the time flew all too quickly. We drove on twenty-two miles in the afternoon, and being all downwind, were pestered with mosquitoes and most fearfully bitten. The country much the same as the previous day, very little taken up, but the wild flowers lovely. We counted forty-two different specimens, those yellow orchids you are so proud of at home, also red tiger lilies, phalloxes, and endless other varieties. Birtle, another mushroom town, looked so pretty and picturesque as we came down upon it by the evening light, situated in a deep gorge much wooded on the Birdtail Creek. You would have laughed to see us arrive at what we thought our destination, a nice house on the top of the opposite hill belonging to a friend of the manager's, where we were to be hospitably entertained. The house was locked up, but that was no obstacle. We forced the windows open, and whilst A put the horses up, the manager went down the hill for water, I foraged for eatables, E for wood to light the fire, and we very shortly afterwards sat down to a very fair meal, our neighbor's bacon and tea, but our own bread. Luckily a Winnipeg lady, hearing of our arrival, came up to offer her services in the shape of food or lodging. The latter we too greatly accepted, instead of pitching our tent outside the house, which was already full, three bachelors living there, and our two men intending sleeping between the walls, coute que coute. The house we spent our night in was a log one, and though unpapered, looked very comfortable, and was prettily hung round with Japanese fans and scrolls, and various photographs. We had a funny little canvas partition in the roof allotted to us, but were not particular, and did a great credit to our feather bed. And how excellent our breakfast was next morning! Porridge and eggs! We hardly knew when to stop eating. We started early to Fort Ellis, one of the Hudson Bay forts, hoping to find the steamer on the Assiniboine to take us back to Winnipeg, but unfortunately it had stuck on the rapids. So, after waiting twenty-four hours at the fort, we determined to drive down to the end of the Canadian Pacific Railway, and so home. The old fort is very altered from what it used to be, surrounded by its wooden palings, and having a store on the left side of the entrance gate where all the Indians come to make their purchases in cotton goods and groceries, in exchange for their blankets, moccasins, or furs. The Assiniboine we cross just before getting to the fort, on a ferry. It is a grand, winding river with fearfully steep banks, three hundred and eighty feet almost straight up, which was a pull for our horses, the tracks being very bad and not well engineered, going perpendicularly up the hill. Mr. MacDonald is the boss at the fort, and had known two of our friends who were up here several years ago. There is a Lincolnshire man farming on a large scale settled not very far away from the fort, but we had neither time nor inclination to go further north. We had hoped against hope that the steamer might get up, but on Saturday gave it up as useless, and settled to drive towards Gopher Ferry, trying to find a friend who, when out at Sea Farm, told us he was living on Section 27 by 13, and near two creeks. For the first five miles our road lay along the Beaver Creek, which was pretty, but afterwards the scenery much resembled Winnipeg, flat and uninteresting, not a tree, and without even the beautiful vegetation and flowers we had had on our previous drives. We had to stop several times to look at the section posts. It was quite an excitement to mark every new number we came to. Our road took us pretty straight to the Mouse Mountain Trail, 
but at a shanty being advised to leave the track and go straight over the prairie, we overshot the tents we were in search of by a short distance. Our friend had not returned from Winnipeg, but we made ourselves quite at home, pitching our tent alongside of his men's. He had four Englishmen working for him. Two of them were tenant farmers at home. One man, who had been out two years, had a large farm near King's Lynn, and has taken up a section close by. But as he bought his land too late in the spring to do anything to it, beyond hoping to build himself a shanty before the winter set in, he is working for our friend, who has two thousand acres. Another of the men was a newly arrived immigrant. He and his three children were nearly devoured by mosquitoes, and were most grateful for some concoction we gave them to allay the irritation. He had been quite a gent in his own country, but bad times and alcohol had been too much for him. I don't think he at all relished the work he had to do, ploughing with oxen all day, etc. They plough almost entirely with oxen up in this country. The oxen are easier to feed, and don't suffer so much from the alkali in the water. But most of the Englishmen, when they first get out here, dislike using them. They are so slow, and I should agree with them. A great many newcomers find the ways and means difficult to conform to, and would give a good deal to go back, but after they have been out a year or two they drop into fresh habits and seem to like the life. On Sunday we started late, for two reasons. The horses, which had been very restless all night, driven mad by the mosquitoes, could not be found, having wandered over the brow of the hill to the river edge, to catch the slight breeze blowing, and secondly we thought we would have a rest, and did nothing but regret it all day, as the heat was fearful, and as we went down wind the mosquitoes were ditto. Also we got into camp very late at Flat Creek, where we had hoped to find a freight train, to get on as tax as Brandon, whereas we had to camp close to a marsh just outside the city, the city comprising a cistern to provide the engines of the train with water and half a dozen tents all stuck on the marsh. We were rather amused by the name of one lodging tent, the unique hotel. In other words, beds were divided off by curtains, so that you were quite private. We pitched our tent on the highest spot we could find, but the mosquitoes, to accommodate us, left the marshes and came in perfect myriads around us. We lit smudges on all sides, but as there was hardly a breath of air the smoke went heavenwards, and consequently we had to sit almost into them, and could hardly see to eat for the denseness of smoke. Query, which was the worst, the evil or the cure? That last night was the most uncomfortable of the whole lot, and I don't think any of us disliked the prospect of a comfortable bed. But in spite of all our roughing, we have enjoyed it, and very glad we went. It is satisfactory to know that all the prairie is not as flat as around us at Sea Farm, that it is rolling, and covered with bluffs or brushwood. A is pleased, as he has seen no ground as good as his own, and declares he wouldn't exchange his four hundred and eighty acres for a thousand up west. The land is certainly of a much lighter nature, having more sand in it, and is easier to get into cultivation in consequence, but he doesn't think it will stand the same amount of cropping. The trails, which are only tracks made by the half-breeds and Indians on the prairie, have been good throughout, but in spring are full of mud-holes or sloughs. The new carriage has turned out quite a success, and been very useful, as it has carried all our clothes, buffalo robes, buckets, and oats for the horses, our provisions, etc., even to our tent, the poles of which were slung along the carriage just above the wheels, and the whole so light that A pushed it easily three or four hundred yards when we were moving our camp at Fort Ellis. End of letter 21. Read by Sibella Denton. 
All LibriVox files are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.